As you are finding a seat, can you open with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 14, the book of Acts chapter 14. We will be covering just the first seven verses of chapter 14, but we, I want to remind you of kind of where we are in these two chapters. If you look at the screen here, you'll remember this map from a few weeks ago. I just want to give you a quick reminder of what has been happening. So, Paul and Barnabas are here in this church at Antioch, Syrian Antioch, and they are commissioned by the church, really the first official missionary sent out by a local church. And if you remember, they went down to the island of Cyprus. They started at Salamis. They ended up at Paphos, and they helped uh, lead a Roman leader to faith. And then they headed up to the shore here at Perga. We don't get a lot of information, but last chapter where we were in chapter 13 was in Pisidian Antioch. And that is where all of 13 took place. That's when Paul preached that long sermon, the first recorded sermon of Paul in Acts 13. And after a mixed response, remember initially there were some Jewish believers, some Gentiles, and then the majority of the Jewish people turned against Paul, and they end up running him out of the city at the end of 13. Well, now Paul is going to flee down here to Iconium, which is where today's passage takes place chapter 14 in Iconium, the first seven verses. At the end of this, you'll never guess at the end of this what happens to Paul. He gets run out of town again. This kind of how it, you know, that's, Paul knows it's time to end the missionary trip when he's about to be executed. He's like, all right, I think the missionary trip has ended. I'm going to move to the next town. So when Paul gets word he's about to be killed by stoning, he then flees to Lystra, which hopefully will be next Sunday's passage, and Derby, way out here, which is not far from his hometown of Tarsus, which is nearby. And then Paul and Barnabas are going to make a return journey back through all those churches, and then they're going to sail back to Antioch uh, at the end of chapter 14. So again, today, I'll circle it one more time. We're right there. We are in the city of Antioch for today's passage, and I'm going to go ahead and read that for you. So look with me. I'm going to actually start at the tail end of 13 just to remember what was just happening. So Acts chapter 13, verse 49. This is the Word of the Lord. And the Word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Okay, I've titled the sermon today, uh, Jesus Divides. Jesus Divides. And you may say, if you were scrolling through a list of sermon titles, this may not be the one. You'd go, that's the one I want to listen to on my commute today. But this is a really important topic, and it is crystal clear in this passage. So, Jesus Divides. I'm borrowing my four words today from James Boyce. So, my four-point outline are these four words. Number one, preaching. Number two, division. Number three, persecution. And number four, growth. Preaching, division, persecution, 
and growth. And I'm going to be going to various passages today to give a little bit more clarity to what seems to be happening. So, number one, preaching. Preaching. How do they do this? Well, let me give you a little bit of an introductory word before we jump straight into this first point. This is just something I've I've noticed over the years. I think this is something real that I'm noticing, not just sort of a a random anecdotal piece of evidence, but I think it's something real. I have noticed because I spend a lot of time during the school year with with upper high school students, and uh, I've noticed this increasing tendency with the younger, with 17, 18-year-olds, that I I wonder if there's something going on, and, and I think there is. Here's something I've noticed a lot. Very often, when they discuss sharing their faith with a non-Christian friend, it could be over coffee, it could be oftentimes it's online. They're talking to someone they know online, and they're trying to share the gospel or whatever it may be. They have often found that if a person, how a person responds to what they're saying is sort of the arbiter of whether or not they're succeeding and whether or not they're doing the right thing. So, if a person responds with sort of aggression or anger just at what's being said, or if a person responds and is offended by what's being said, then they feel like they've done something wrong. I I must have done something wrong. Now, let me just immediately out of the gate be very clear. You may have done something wrong. (laughs) If someone is mad at you for the way you're sharing the gospel, you may be doing it in a a sinful way. So, let me just be… because this won't be the main point of the sermon. I've got a different point, but this point needs to be loud and clear from the beginning. It is possible for a Christian to be needlessly insensitive to someone as they talk to them and to be mean-spirited, self-righteous, hyper-judgmental in the way that they talk. By judgmental, I don't mean making moral judgments. Everyone on earth makes moral judgments. Even the people who say you shouldn't judge are making a moral judgment. Everybody makes moral judgments. Otherwise, you're not even a human being. You can't live without saying you should or shouldn't. I mean, think about that. Try living without saying you should or shouldn't. I mean, we're all judgmental in the sense that we, we have standards of right and wrong. Here's what I mean. Judgmental means the spirit of how I am speaking is I am morally superior to you. That I am wise and you because you're a fool. And I know what I'm talking about and you have no idea. And the attitude of that is a moral superiority. Let's just from the outset say the Christian has no grounds whatsoever for any sense of moral superiority towards other people, no matter how lost they may be, no matter how in a state of sin they may be, because what? But for the grace of God, there am I. We have to see that God's grace in our life is what makes the difference. So, that, that is clear. We can be sinful in the way we present the truth. But it is, not, it is still false to say that the reaction of the person I'm sharing with, whether they are angry or happy, is the final judgment on whether I'm doing the right thing. Do you understand the distinction I'm trying to make here? So, here's what I mean. Very often, my students will speak as though if someone gets upset, I am being unloving or mean-spirited to them. And I'm saying, not necessarily. And I want to just go ahead and from the outset mention a few things. So, look at Acts uh, 14. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. How does Paul and Barnabas, how do they approach evangelism in a group of people they've never seen before? Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. This is wonderful news. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. 
So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, I just love this, first of all. We're told that some unbelievers poisoned the Gentiles' minds to reject Paul's message. They poisoned their minds. And so the next words are, therefore they remained and spoke boldly. I love that combination. So people are poisoning their minds against Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas go, you know, that means we should not leave. That means we should actually hunker down and stay for a while. We We need to dig in our heels here. We need to spend some time here, and we need to actually really make sure that the truth is clear. So they spoke the word boldly, and the Lord even bore witness to the word, granting miracles, signs, and wonders. No doubt these were healings, perhaps exorcisms, things like that that were happening by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. So hold your spot here. We're going to be flipping around some today. Turn to the right to the book of Colossians chapter 4. And I I love this passage uh, for for the purposes of evangelism. I just think this is a wonderful short passage in Colossians 4 where we see some of Paul's characteristic uh, ways of engaging in evangelism. So Colossians chapter 4, this preaching, this teaching that Paul endeavors to do is to be clear and convictional clear and convictional. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Look back at verse 4. That, he asked for prayer, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Just trying to speak as honestly as I can, if fear of man gets hold of me when I'm talking to a non-Christian or if I'm preaching or something, fear of man shows up as a temptation in my life in this way. So, fear of man, it's a fancy word. That just means you, you care about pleasing people. You have a fear of people. You, you, you fear their disapproval and you crave their approval and their adulation, that they, they, they speak well of you. And that can become an idol. That can become a God replacement. And when fear of man begins to tempt me, my temptation when it comes to especially the rough edges of Scripture the more difficult aspects of the Bible, my temptation is to be less than clear on those issues. In other words, we start speaking in euphemisms, we start kind of walking around the truth, stating it indirectly, not stating it very clearly, because we know that if we state the truth clearly, it's just right out there in the open. There's no hiding anymore. This is what I believe. At that point, we know it is most likely what? Criticism will come our way. And uh, the opposite of clarity is a, is a fancy little phrase. Have you ever heard of the phrase studied ambiguity? Studied ambiguity. It's just a fancy way of saying you are studying, you are trying to make what you're saying ambiguous and not as clear. In other words, sometimes you will hear, I would consider some of these people not helpful pastors or teachers on TV sometimes, and they'll be asked hard questions on CNN or something. And what do they do? They talk for about two minutes, and they don't really say anything at all. Have you seen this? So someone says, do you believe Jesus is the only way to salvation? And if you don't believe in Him, you will not be saved. And the person says, well, I, I'm not one to judge. 
I believe God is the final judge, and I believe God loves everyone, and I, you know, I'm not going to be the final arbiter of truth. And you talk for about two minutes, and you end. What did you just do? That's studied ambiguity. You were ambiguous deliberately. You were unclear as to what you believe intentionally. Why? Why would you make the message unclear deliberately if you're supposed to be, you know, representative of Christ on national television? The answer is, you know what people will say if you are clear. So, Paul knows to be clear on the truth is to face more opposition. Now, this is really significant. I know I've, I'm sure, I know I've quoted this at some point in the past. G.K. Chesterton, back 110 years ago in, his, in one of his books in Orthodoxy, he has this quote about humility. Now, just, just listen to this. If you've heard it before, it's worth hearing again. And the reason I read this, I think today people often believe that if you're really clear about what you believe and convictional, you are arrogant by definition. If you say, this is clearly, truthfully what I believe, black and white, this is it, people will often accuse you of being arrogant. Whereas, if you are, I don't really know, and who's to say, and you're ambiguous and unclear, people will often say, that person's very humble. You know what I mean? You know, be, I don't, who's to say? I'm not the judge. Who am I? I'm not God. I can't say. Well, then, oh, you sound so humble. You sound so unsure of yourself. You know, I mean, how many people today, when they end this statement about what they believe, say, but who knows? I could be wrong, Right? Who knows? I could be wrong about, you know, do you believe in God? Well, yeah, I kind of do, but I mean, I could be wrong. Who really knows? We just think, we think that's humble. So, I think it's actually the reverse, but here's what Chesterton said. Humility was largely meant as a restraint upon the arrogance and the infinity of the appetite of man. So, humility was supposed to calm our arrogance down, our appetite for ourself. Man was always outstripping his mercies with his own newly invented needs, but what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition, trying to advance my name, modesty has moved from the organ of ambition, modesty has settled upon now the organ of conviction about truth, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself that is, his own motives and his own, you know, those kinds of things. He was, we were meant to be doubtful about ourselves, but undoubting about God's truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason, the divine word. For the old humility made a man doubtful about his efforts which might make him work harder, but the new humility makes a man doubtful about his very aims, his very purpose, which will make him stop working altogether. And then he closes, this is just, this is 110 years ago. Think about the relevancy for this right now. We are on the road to producing a race of man too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Have you heard the controversy, does two plus two really equal four recently? People say, it could equal five depending on your perspective culturally. It's like, uh, don't be my engineer. <laughs> don't build my airplanes if that's what you think, because okay? <laughs> I don't want to crash. So, um, there is objective truth. So, so, the point here is, he says, listen, we're, we're creating a race of human beings so mentally modest that they can no longer believe that two plus two equals four and nothing else. We, we can no longer believe in convictional truth because it's considered to be arrogant. And if you're sure of truth, you must have an arrogance problem. And, and I actually want to say again, it is exactly… What do people do instead? They say, well, who's to say? But I feel like probably what's true is… You know what just happened? 
We took the certainty of God's objective word, and we said, who's to say? You know, people debate this all the time. Who's to, who's to know what this really means? Who's to know if this is true? But I'll tell you what I feel is true. We just put our own intuitions above Scripture. And I, I just think, before going on a complete tangent here, I guess I already am on a tangent, but uh, th- 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 there is a strong tendency today to take our intuition, you know, intuition. My, my instinct about what's right, or my instinct about what's moral, or my instinct about what makes sense, or my instinct about how God should run the world, right? We have, I think John MacArthur said this, we, we've taken our instinct and we've put it above God's Word. And we actually usually interpret God's Word not based on exegetical rules, but based on our feelings. You know, have you ever been in a small group and someone says, what does the text mean to you? Well, that should be perfectly irrelevant. <laughs> what the text means to me doesn't matter. The question is, what does it mean to God? What did God mean when He inspired it? There is an actual meaning in this text. And my job is not to sort of feel my way through it and give you a sense of what I think. My job is to, with the tools of exegesis and hermeneutics, to to sit down and say, okay, why does He use the word that or so that or therefore or but or and, and to put together the logic and to understand what God meant when He wrote this. You know, postmodernism, which we will talk more about on Thursday night, Lord willing, postmodernism has basically said, Capital T truth is out, gone, say goodbye. There is no meta-narrative, right? There is no overarching truth that is true for all people in all places at all times. All you have is culturally located truth claims. So you have, yeah, it's true for you, but it's not true for me. This was true when I was growing up, but it may not have been true where you grew up. And this is the way we thought, and this may not be the way you thought. And so what you have is a bunch of individual claims to truth, but no overarching claim to truth. And today, that has crept in so deeply that we tend to think and that's what humility is. And anyone who says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the one Savior that the one Creator God sent. He made you, first of all, in His image. He sent His Son to live a perfect life, die a horrible death, be resurrected, raised to His right side, and Jesus offers you eternal salvation if you will turn and trust Him. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. When you say that out loud, people will call you arrogant. Now listen, is there an arrogant way to say that? Yes. But is the truth itself arrogant to believe? No, I call that humility to believe. Humility says, I don't trust my intuition, but I trust God. You see? I don't trust my own sense of right and wrong. I don't trust my own moral intuition. I trust what God has said. God has made promises, and I will submit to them and trust them. That's what humility is. God says in Isaiah 66, I think, or 65, This is the one to whom I will look, which means look with favor. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and who what? Trembles at my word. God calls humility someone who is so in awe of God's word that we tremble as we hold it in our hands, lest we misinterpret it. We want to know what it says. We want to rightly handle the word of God, rightly divide the word of truth, and to grow in our knowledge of God so that we can be humbled by these truths and speak them with clarity and conviction. And just as a cross-reference here, uh, John, John 7, 7. Just don't turn there. Just listen real quick. Listen to this. This is Jesus. John 7, 7, Jesus said, the world hates me. Now, He's going to tell us why. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus tells us why. The world hates me because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. The world hates me 
because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. This is where the sermon's going. I think this is where Paul's whole ministry is going in Acts. If you will talk to people, and it, it doesn't matter how meek and humble and how patient and how salty, Paul says it's salty in a good sense, seasoned with salt, uh, gracious in Colossians, it doesn't matter how much grace and saltiness in a good sense is there in our tone, we could have the perfect tone, a perfectly Christ-like tone, a humble tone. We could be broken by the gospel and speaking out of conviction and love for a lost person. When we say what the Bible says about what deeds are evil in this world, people will call us names that are untrue. And when they do, it doesn't mean we are failing to honor God with our words. Do you understand where I'm going here? This is a burden to me. Because when, when we, we are going to be tempted in today's culture to edit God's Word, to have studied ambiguity. When a famous Christian, I'm not going to name the person, my point is not to throw this person under the train, but when a famous Christian person was interviewed a couple years ago, they were asked a question about um, sexual, Christian sexual ethics, and specifically about homosexuality, and the person's answer was, again, a non-answer. It was you, know, you can read the Bible for yourself. You know, a lot of people have different views, and that was the answer. And I'm just telling you, in, in, in today's society, it will be considered arrogant and unloving to speak clearly about what God says. I was thinking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a massive ministry. Says all of Jerusalem came to be baptized. I mean, that's slight hyperbole, but I mean, thousands and thousands of people came to be baptized by John, including the Christ. John was as popular as you can be. And John could have left one sentence out of his message and had a long and prosperous life. But he didn't. He refused to edit God's word regarding sexual morality, and what did he do? He said Herod should not have his brother's wife. If he would have left that one sentence out about sexual ethics in the Old Testament, he would not have been put in prison. He would not have gone through the period of doubt in prison in that squalored, awful environment. He would not have had to be beheaded because of the wish of a teenage girl who was dancing before her uncle, remember? All of that ignominious, shameful, horrible death. I mean, you can imagine someone counseling John right before he goes public with his message about Herod. John, listen, if you call Herod out for his sexual ethics, you are facing serious consequences. Just leave that one sentence out of your message, and you could have a long and prosperous life. Do you know how tempting it would have been to leave that one sentence out? Because he was faithful to that one sentence on sexual ethics in the Bible, he was put in prison and he was beheaded because of the wish of a teenage girl and her mother after Herod was drunk and made, a, you know, made that promise in that party. My point is, there is going to be a temptation to try to edit God's Word and to not be fully faithful. And Paul and Barnabas know whenever they go into a city, they're going to preach the, the whole counsel of God, Paul says, and then some will repent and believe and others will be hostile, and that is the way it is going to be. And some even who are initially hostile, like Paul himself was, may be one later to Christ. They are not hopeless, but there will always be that mixed uh, response and that kind of division. So, point number one was preaching. It needs to be done with clarity and conviction. Clarity is humility, and conviction should come from the Holy Spirit. Point number two is division. So, if you can turn back to Acts, verse, chapter 14, you can look at verse 4. 
but the people of the city were divided. Jesus divides. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Now, if you hold your spot again in in Acts and turn with me to Luke's gospel, chapter 2. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. In fact, although I didn't really plan this ahead of time, this is the same exact passage we looked at, I think, just last Sunday. This is Simeon in the temple seeing Jesus as a child. But I want to read the part I did not read from Simeon today. Luke chapter 2, Jesus has just been presented in the temple. And listen to the part Simeon says. We read verses 29 to 32 last week. Let's pick up at verse 33 of what Simeon says while he holds Jesus in his arms. Luke 2, 33. And his father and mother, that is Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child, Jesus, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. That's a division. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Likely referring there, that's to Mary's grief as Jesus is crucified. A sword pierced her own soul. So that thoughts, the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, do you see that? When the truth of Jesus is going to be presented and put forward, what's going to happen? Some are going to rise and some are going to fall, and the thoughts of hearts will be revealed. When the gospel is clearly presented and when God's Word is clearly preached, taught, learned, and you get to know it, the thoughts of the heart are revealed because you either are going to repent and believe or you're going to harden your heart and turn away, but some will rise, some will fall. There will be a division. There will be a revelation of what's within the heart when the gospel is revealed. The gospel will divide. Turn to chapter 12 of Luke. Luke chapter 12. Look at Luke 12 and start down in verse 49, Jesus' own words, Luke 12, 49, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus is saying that when the gospel and the truth are preached, there is going to be a division. Not all will meet with its approval. Now, let me just say here, I have felt a temptation also for years, I, just a constant temptation with the fear of man, there, there's a part of me that desperately wants to present the truth of Scripture in a way that is going to be acceptable in some sense to the broader society. Just, just try to find the, the brilliant way to do that. Well, there is no brilliant way to do that without changing the content of the message. And so, here's what we have to know. We have to know that the world as a system is not going to repent and believe. The world as a system. But will individuals within the world system, when the gospel is preached, repent and believe and come to Christ? Yes. And so, we are, oftentimes we have the wrong aim. We often are trying to get the whole system turned around. That is not going to happen. When the, at the return of Christ, that is not going to happen. We're not going to bring in that, the kingdom on earth through that happening. But what we will see, by God's grace, is many individuals from that system, like we once were, coming out of it and fleeing to Christ. So, are we going to win the broad approval of our culture? No. And we should not make that an aim. We should make it an aim to be 
clear, convictional, and then to pray that God bring His own out of that lost and dying culture and that they would be saved. Okay, let's move on to point number three back in Acts. I'll read verses 5 through 7. This is persecution, which comes after the division. Verses 5 through 7, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers, so now political rulers are involved, to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, turn with me to the left to John chapter 15. John 15, a few more things from the gospels here. Now, I actually remember preparing to preach on this passage a few years ago, and I remember just thinking, man, this this is a heavy text. But I want to read it uh, anyway because I think it is very relevant to this topic. So, John chapter 15, verses 18 and following. I'll skip a few verses, but John uh, 15, verse 18. Jesus says, the night before His death, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, you see that? Do you see this? Jesus is saying, listen, if I don't warn you that a division will come when the truth is presented and that persecution will come, the world will hate the true followers of Jesus. Jesus says, if I don't warn you of that ahead of time, you may not endure to the end. But I'm telling you this ahead of time to keep you from falling away. Do you understand this? You may be caught off guard. You may think, well, when I present this truth, everybody in my family, everybody in my dorm, everybody in my class is going to love it because I love it. It changed my life. And as soon as I tell them everybody, I know, how could they not embrace this? And you will go with great enthusiasm. And when you share and you have a mixed response, a divided response, Jesus says, don't be surprised. Be prepared for that. 16.2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. If you notice there in verses 26 and 27, he says, but you're going to have a helper. When you present the truth, the Holy Spirit will bear witness. He will bear witness about me, and He will convict hearts as we speak to others. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, back to the left, in the Sermon on the Mount. I find it interesting that these two parts go right together in the the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. Look with me at Matthew 5, verse 9. Jesus says, 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, even though they're peacemakers, that doesn't mean they're going to avoid persecution. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You you had that happen? I mean, really, have, have you had someone make up either direct lies or misinformation and use it to hurt your reputation, even maybe because of your faith in Christ? What's our response? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And look right after that, you are the salt of the earth. And verse 14, you are the light of the world. I I do think that part of, I'm sure there's much more to it, part of being salt and light in our culture is the ability to take persecution and to respond unlike the world. In the world, if you get hit, you hit back. If someone slanders you, you slander them back. Instead, Jesus says, when you are falsely slandered, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. And then right after that, you're the salt, you're the light. I don't think that's an accident. That that is so different from the way the world is. To respond to false accusations and persecution with joy, confident in God and His sovereignty and His goodness and your reward in heaven, that makes you salty and that makes you light to the world. It makes you different. It makes people wonder what the hope is that is within you. And another passage I want to look at, look at Matthew 10. To the right, a few chapters, Matthew chapter 10. Look with me at verse 16. I'm going to read an extended passage here as well. Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 16. Uh, Jesus says to the apostles, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brothers will be delivered over to brother to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Look at verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that, is not, that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then similar to Luke, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword and on it goes. So, Jesus wants us to know very clearly, He says this repeatedly, that when we follow Him and when we speak His truth, there will always be, as a result, a divide. The Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And the same gospel truth, the same biblical truth that softens some hearts by God's grace will leave others hardened in their sin, but we must be faithful to speak what is true. All right, turn with me back to Acts 14, and we will come to a close here. Let me reread verses uh, 4 through 7. 
But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So the fourth point today is growth. Uh, it's interesting, when Paul and Barnabas make their trip back through these newly formed churches, these churches have been around for what? A few months at this point? Not long. When they go back through, it says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul goes back and he sees a growing church, a thriving small community of churches in these scattered throughout these cities, and they go back and they strengthen them and they encourage them in the faith and they warn them, they encourage them. They say, listen, there are going to be many tribulations that we must endure before we enter the kingdom. What you're seeing here, you have miracles and near-death persecution. Paul will be stoned nearly to death next Sunday by a crowd. So you have miracles and healings, and in the same town you'll have horrific persecution. What These are so opposite of each other. What you're seeing is the old world system and the new age colliding right here. You've got the old age, right, with persecution and hatred of God, and then you've got the new age, right? And glimpses of resurrection and healing and new creation are coming in, and you have these two things coming together, and there's Paul and Barnabas in the middle, and all of us, where we're right up there against God's grace and salvation and transformation and forgiveness, and also the rejection of so many in the world. So, the, the final encouragement I want to give to you is, it is true that if we're faithful to God's Word, the world as a system will not accept us. We, if we're trying to be cool to the world, you will be led down a path of theological liberalism where you reject parts of the Bible. If you want to be accepted, I mean, just, okay, just complete tangent now. I, I don't, Rob Bell is just the easiest example to pick on here, if you remember Rob Bell. So, Rob Bell, when I was graduating high school, his DVDs were like at every youth group in Athens. I mean, I could, I could, I just everybody loved Rob Bell. He drifted more and more into genuine false teaching. Well, a couple years ago, he's interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. And you know when Oprah loves your book, there's something wrong with your book, but uh, Oprah was loving his book on marriage, and of course he endorsed same-sex marriage and all kinds of different things in the book, but they asked him about this, and the, uh, Oprah said, isn't the church going to make progress in this area on sexual ethics? Aren't they, aren't they going to see the light and make progress? And Rob Bell, this man used to be a megachurch pastor, okay, wrote some of the best-selling Christian books of the last 20 years. Rob Bell said to Oprah on the show, and you can watch it online to this day, he said, the church is going to become a whole lot increasingly irrelevant as long as it keeps listening to letters from 2,000 years ago and, and won't listen to stories of uncles and aunts and friends and co-workers who, ha who have changed their lifestyle and have found great fulfillment in that. What I'm saying is, he, in a desperate effort to keep the approval of the Oprahs, right, keep the approval of the world, what does he do? He has to change the Bible. He has to actually discard the Bible and mock it as 2,000-year-old letters. Who cares what Romans says? That's a 2,000-year-old letter. What matters is what my uncle says about his life experience. That's literally what he said on national television. So, my point is this. Given how culture is shifting in some ways, and especially what we talk about this week on Thursday, we must be, be ready to graciously and lovingly stand with the truth of Scripture and know that some will call us names, some will hate us, but here's the good news. Some in this world system will hear the truth. They will repent. They will come out of the darkness into the light by God's grace and through the work of His Spirit, and we will be able to celebrate conversions from this world system. So, we must keep those two things in hand, and we must keep the tension in hand uh, as we go forward. But let's, let us remember that there will be seemingly discouraging but also encouraging things that will come together uh, in our Christian walk. Let's, let's bow our heads together in prayer.
Heavenly Father, I pray for humility. Don't let there be an ounce of moral pride or superiority with anything or anyone in the world, no matter how much we might disagree with some that is, or with much that is said. Help us to be genuinely humble, understanding that we are saved by sheer grace, that we deserve hell as much as anyone left to ourselves, and help that just to be part of our way of talking to others. Help it to have a graciousness, to be seasoned with salt, a gentleness, a kindness. But Lord, give us also clarity of speech, boldness, and conviction. Lord, help us to stand up for the truth, even like John the Baptist, when changing one sentence could get you out of jail. Help us to not. Much like John Bunyan, that great believer hundreds of years ago who could have signed a statement saying he would not preach, but chose not to and spent years in prison while his wife with a disabled child and other children had to fend without him present. And yet, while in prison, he pens Pilgrim's Progress, one of the great and best-selling books of all time that has changed so many lives. Lord, help us to trust You no matter what comes our way, and I pray that You would win out of this world system many, many, many more people who today at this very moment, whether in this city or beyond, are not even thinking about You, don't care at all about Jesus or the gospel. I pray that in six months' time, in a year's time, some of those people would be in this room, that they would have professed faith in Christ, experienced the miracle of regeneration and forgiveness, and that they could join Your bride, the church. God, I pray You would do more than we ask or think uh, through Your power and through Your goodness, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.